You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening. Now, on to the message. Friends, welcome this morning. My name is Spencer, and I am just so incredibly honored to be here this morning, and I, I can't tell you how excited I am to share this message with you. Um, I'm the new lead pastor of Schweitzer. If you've kind of been out of loop for a few months, just wanted to let you know that there's a new guy, and uh, that hopefully that's not a surprise to you, but I'm, I'm just so incredibly honored to be here. I said last week, I'll say it again this week, uh, to be the, the lead pastor, named lead pastor of Schweitzer, and to follow Bob Cassidy is just an incredible honor for me. Uh, I've known Bob for 15 years, and he has been a, a mentor and friend of, my, my, uh, of myself and um, has taught me so many things. And, and I, I got to know Bob 15 years ago because Bob gave me my first job in ministry right out of college. He hired me to be the youth director at the church he was serving, which is right here at Schweitzer. And so I was here at Schweitzer as the youth director for about 14 months um, and many of you don't remember that because it was 14 months. It was only 14 months, uh, and it was from 2004 to 2005. And uh, my, my father-in-law passed away during that time frame, and so my family, my wife and I, Abby, we moved to Texas, and that's when I went to seminary. And, and from there, we've uh, just been serving the Lord, and, and now it's kind of come full circle, and I'm just so incredibly honored to be here this morning. Now, now today, though, is not about me. I'm not going to stand here for 30 minutes and talk about me. There's something far more interesting to talk about than just, just me. I've got a, a word I want to share with you today, and... Uh, we're going to talk for the next five weeks uh, in this series called Navigating Change because we are in a season of change. All of us are. You have had a pastor for 19 years. Let's just go ahead and round that up. 20 years you had the same senior pastor, and now there's a new guy, and some of you were just getting used to the last guy, and <laughs> it's time for somebody new. Uh, my family, we, I'm in a new church. We are in a new town. My kids are in a new school. We're still got boxes in our house. There's all kinds of, of change that's going on. So I thought it'd be wise to start off right off the bat just talking together about uh, change and how to navigate change and, and how do followers of Jesus specifically, how do we respond to change? Because let's just, let's just start this and be honest for just a moment because change is hard. Yeah. Change is hard. It's okay to admit that. Change is a hard thing to navigate. Change is difficult. Uh, and there's all kinds of reasons why change is hard. We're going to talk through a lot of those reasons over the next five weeks as we, as we work our way through this series, why change is hard. But we want to, we want to get to a, an understanding of how do followers of Jesus respond to change. Because the normal way to respond to change is with things like stress and worry and fear and anxiety. And that's how normal people um, handle change. But how do followers of Jesus handle change? And I'm not just going to give you my opinions. I want to work with you through this. I'm not the kind of preacher, by the way, who just wants to tell you what I think. I want to share with you what the Word says and work our way through um, what does God's Word teach us about change and how to navigate change. And so what we're going to do for the next five weeks is we're going to read through a whole book of the Bible and we're going to learn about change as we, as we read God's Word together and, and and learn the lessons that we're going to read together. So we're going to go to Philippians. And if you have your Bibles, you might want to turn to Philippians. We're going to read through Philippians for the next five weeks. And uh, we're just going to read really verse by verse as we work through this. Because you may not realize this, but Philippians is a book that was written all about change. 
This is a letter that Paul wrote to a little church in a town called Philippi. He started this church, and the reason he's writing this letter is to say goodbye, which is a, a pretty profound change. The founding pastor is saying goodbye to the church. And so we're going to read through Philippians and, and learn the lesson that Paul teaches that church uh, as they are navigating through change of how do followers of Jesus, those who hope in resurrection, how do we navigate change? So we're going to start at the very beginning. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to read our way through this. Of course, not all of it this morning. We're just going to go 11 verses this morning. But we're going to read our way through this and, and just learn the lesson of what does God have to teach us uh, through his word about, about how to navigate change. So let's start here. Ver chapter 1, verse 1. It goes like this. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. You may not know this, but ancient letters always started with the people who sent the letter, not the people who are receiving the letter. So Paul is writing this along with Timothy. Goes on, it says, this suits to, to all God's holy people, to the saints, that's another way to translate that, to the whole, God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with, I want you to say this next word with me out loud, right? I always pray with Joy. I always pray with joy. I want you to hold on to that word there. I always pray with joy. Because as we read through this letter of Philippians, what we're going to discover is that this word joy or rejoice, another kind of form of this word, is going to be in this letter over and over and over again. And, and when, you, when you don't see this letter or this word specifically, you're still going to see a tone of joy that's just woven throughout this letter. Now remember, I said that Philippians is a goodbye letter. It's written about the change that the Philippian church is going through, and yet you're going to see throughout this letter either the word or the tone of joy throughout the whole thing, which is an interesting uh, combination there for me. Because for many of us, I don't think we would approach the change with the word joy attached to it. And yet this is what Paul gives us. He attaches this word joy to the changes that we go through and the changes that they're going through. Because I think for most of us, if we were to associate a word with, with change, we might associate words like stress, right? Sleeplessness, fear, kind of what ifs, and all those kinds of things. And yet Paul uses this word joy to, to, to go with this. Now, I'll, I won't lie, this has been on my heart for, uh, for a few months here as I've been kind of wrestling through this. I've been thinking about this, this idea of joy uh, since at least April, since at least April. Because in April, we got in gear at our house to start the move. And we were really, uh, we actually, we started getting in gear a little before that, probably in March. We started getting in gear before that. We haven't moved in seven years, and, and we were been in Kearney. Does anyone know where Kearney is by any chance? Did anyone look that up when I was coming, and that's how you know where Kearney is? Yeah, some of you did. Kearney's Kansas City area. It's bedroom community, and we've been there for seven years, and we started packing in March for this move. Like, we started way too early because we had this idea, let's pack a little bit as we go, and we'll just put away the things you don't need. But do you know how many things you have that you don't need that you still need over a four-month period? There's a lot. So you, we've been in boxes for, for months in our house, and we put this stuff away, and they're like, ah, I don't know where that thing is. we got to go back through all the – like, you pack boxes, unpack boxes, pack them back again because we've just been in boxes. And so I started reading through Philippians in April, and uh, I was struck by this idea of joy that's being woven through here because I, you know, I was in the middle of a, of a move, and I was in the middle of this change, and I was getting a little stressed out about all of these things, and yet I, I was struck by this idea that, that what Paul has here is he has this, this word about, about joy, that somehow for followers of Jesus in the middle of change, in the middle of, of these kinds of circumstances where, where life is changing and there's turmoil in some of that, there can be a joyful hope. 
There can be a joyful confidence that we have. There can be a sense of joy throughout this. And, and this sense of joy that we have, it doesn't just come from like nowhere. It comes from somewhere. The fact that Christians can approach change with joy, it comes from somewhere. Let me show you where this comes from. Let's keep reading here. I forget what verse I'm on. I think it's verse 5. So let's keep reading here and l- listen to where this joy comes from. So I always pray with joy. And then verse 5 says, Because of your partnership, the Greek word there is koinonia, very important word in the New Testament. Sometimes it's translated as fellowship. But because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That is so important. I'm going to read it one more time. Verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. If you're reading from your own Bible, you should underline that verse. It's so important. That, that Paul has this confidence that he who began a good work in them will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now hold on to that verse. We're going to finish this thought, and then we're going to circle back around to that verse because I want you to see where this, where this joy comes from. So let's just finish this thought. We're going to read until verse 11. Verse 7 says, It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart, and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel. By the way, this is why Paul is saying goodbye. He's in chains. He's in prison, Roman prison. He's awaiting execution. This is the circumstances of this letter, and yet he still talks about joy. So whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. You can hear the tone of joy that's throughout this letter. Verse 9 goes on and says, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best, may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. This is just an incredibly hopeful, joyful letter that we read right here. Just so incredibly hopeful and joyful. And so in April, when I was reading through this letter and I was all, boxes were all over my house, I was struck by this idea of joy. And so here's what I've been doing since April. I've been praying for you. And I've been praying that God would give you a sense of joy. Because I know that some of you look at a transition like this and you're worried about it. Some of you maybe have other things going on in your life that are also changes and you're worried about it. So I've just been praying, God, would you give Schweitzer, would you give everyone here, would you give us a sense of joy? Because this is what followers of Jesus can find even in the midst of change, even in the midst of turmoil, even in the midst of stress, we can find joy. God, would you give us a sense of joy? Now this joy doesn't come from nowhere, it comes from somewhere. And Paul told us where it came from, right? He said he had this confidence. He said, I have confidence, I have confidence in this, that he who began a good work in you will carried on to completion, which, which raises a natural question here, which is this, why is Paul so confident? What is the source, what is the basis of Paul's confidence that would lead him to have such joy, even while he writes this from a Roman prison, even while this local church is going through all of this change? What is the basis of Paul's confidence? Let's, let's tease this out for a second. I know that's kind of a simple question because it's kind of obvious because he told us a little bit, but humor me because I'm the new guy and I just need a little bit of grace here. So let's tease this out for just a second. Why is Paul so confident? What is the basis of this confidence? Because there is a reason why Christians, followers of Jesus, can be confident in the midst of change. And then there are all of the reasons that most people look to be confident in the midst of change. So why is Paul so confident? Why is Paul so confident he has joy? Is it because, here's a few examples, here's a few few options here. Is it because the Philippians are really, really smart people and are going to be able to figure out all of the problem, the answers to any problem they're ever going to face? Is that the reason why Paul's confident? No. Is it because the Philippians have a really healthy savings and bank account and therefore they're going to be able to weather whatever storm comes their way and they've got great reserves and great investments and their portfolio looks great? Is that why Paul is so confident that they can face the future? No. 
Is it because they've got good health at least, and at least they've got their, their physical health, and so therefore, you know, whatever comes, they're going to be able to face whatever it is because they've got their health? Well, no, of course not. But these are the kinds of reasons that, that most people look to have confidence about the future, and yet Paul doesn't look at any of these things. Paul instead looks at this, verse 6, we read it several times, that he is confident of this, that he who began a good work in them will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This is the basis of Paul's confidence. You see, when Paul looks at the future, he, he's not basing this off what do the circumstances look like surrounding the Philippian church. He's simply looking at this. The faithfulness of God is what's going to carry us through. The, the faithfulness of God is what's going to help us see tomorrow. The faithfulness of God is what's going to help us face whatever it is that we're going to face in our life. And, and there's not whatever the circumstances look like. I mean, Paul is writing this. Think about this. Paul is writing this from a Roman prison, and, and yet he still has this confidence because God is faithful, because God is righteous, because God will come through for them over and over and over again. But let's be honest for just a second. It is so much easier to base our confidence in life and the future and whenever life gets murky, it is so much easier to base our confidence on our circumstances than it is to base it on the faithfulness of God. It's so much easier to base our, our confidence on what we can see and what we can produce and what we know and what we've seen before than it is to think about the mysterious and miraculous faithfulness of God. One of my favorite examples of this is in the Bible. The people of Israel. Remember the people of Israel, the story of the people of Israel. For 400 years, they're slaves in Egypt. For 400 years, generations, they're slaves in Egypt. And for 400 years, they cry out to God for God to rescue them. And then finally, God hears their prayers and remembers them. And, and what does he do? He calls out to Moses when he's up on the mountain. And, and the bush starts to burn. And Moses goes over and he hears the word of the Lord to go and, and to go to the uh, Pharaoh and, and to free the people of Israel. And, and they go. And he goes. Very reluctantly, he goes. And remember the people of Israel, there's the ten plagues. And then finally, Pharaoh relents. And, and he lets the people of Israel go. And, and, and after he lets the people of Israel go, he starts to regret uh, that he let them go, and so he sends the army after them. Remember this? The army comes after them, and they find themselves camped at the Red Sea. And they've got the Red Sea in front of them, and they've got the world's most powerful army coming after them. And the people look at their circumstances, and they're terrified because the circumstances that they're faced with look terrifying. For good reason, they should be terrified. They are in a hopeless situation. And then Moses stands up and gives one of the great speeches of the Bible. He says the, that they only needed to stand firm and be strong because the Egyptians they see today will never see again because the Lord will deliver them. They just need to be still and have faith. He just has this great speech. It's kind of like a mic drop moment. He walks off and, and then this cloud comes and this cloud of fire separates the people of Israel from the Egyptian army that's coming after them because they've got no hope if the Egyptian army comes to them. And they don't have weapons. They're not soldiers. They don't know how to fight this. But God comes to their aid and he separates them with this cloud of fire. And then, and then the Bible says that this wind starts to blow on the Red Sea and, and it starts to separate the water. And the people of Israel, they're delivered from the most powerful army on earth by walking through the Red Sea on dry ground. And, and there they're delivered and they come to the other side. And, and all of that is Exodus chapter 14. That whole story is Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 15 is, uh, is the story then where they just have a huge party because if you have seen God do that, what you're going to do next is you're going to party too. So the whole chapter of Exodus 15 is this giant party. And then comes Exodus 16. So one more time, stay with me. Exodus 14 is this great miracle of the parting of the Red Sea. Exodus 15 is this incredible party that they have to celebrate the parting of the Red Sea. And then comes Exodus 16, the very next chapter. 
the very next chapter. Now, I'm going to start reading here in verse 2. Like, notice, this is not verse 20. This is verse 2. This is at the beginning of the chapter. These are the people who have seen God come through for them so incredibly powerful. And here's what it says. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. How does this happen? How does this happen? These are the people who have seen the greatest miracle of the Bible minus the resurrection, right? The greatest miracle of the Old Testament. They have seen God deliver them from generations of slavery. They have seen God raise up a prophet. They have seen God drown the most powerful army on earth. They have seen God's deliverance and they have seen God come through for them. But when it comes to dinner, they're like, yeah, I don't think God's got that. He's got lots, but I don't think he's got that. Yeah he, can, yeah, he can take care of the Egyptians, but can he really, can he bring dinner? Like, how does this happen? Well, this is, this is classic circumstantial confidence. Classic circumstantial confidence. This is what it looks like when you base your confidence on the future based on what it looks like around you. Because here's how circumstantial confidence looks. When things are good, I'm good. When things are favorable, I have joy. When things are, are going up, when the, when the chart goes up and to the right, well then therefore I can be in a good mood, I can sleep well at night, I have confidence for everything that's gonna, that's gonna happen to me, but when things are bad, well, here comes the stress. Here comes the sleeplessness. Here comes the anxiety. Here comes the fear. Here comes the irritability. Here comes the arguments with other people. Here it comes. All of this negativity starts to emerge because what I am doing is I am basing my confidence on, on what I can see. You see two examples here. Here's Paul who sits in a Roman prison. The circumstances are awful, and yet he has joy. And here are the Israelites who faced with awful obstacles, have based all of their, their confidence on what they can see around them, and they are terrified, and they are grumbling, and they are missing the miraculous power of God around them. Two examples here. I've been thinking about these, these two examples for, for some time because as I've been coming here, I had to wrestle with circumstantial confidence in order to say yes to becoming the pastor at Schweitzer. Let me tell you a little bit about that. On February 14th, our bishop asked me to come and have a meeting with him. It's Valentine's Day, right? I went and had a meeting, drove over to Columbia as in Kearney, drove over to Columbia, had a meeting with our bishop, and he asked me if I'd become the pastor at Schweitzer. Talked to me for a while about this, and I had a conversation with him, and he closed the meeting with, with praying for myself and my wife. He didn't know her name, but he, he tried to come up with it at the moment, didn't, didn't do it, but it's all right. <laughs> Closes the prayer, and he, and he says to me, you know, I just realized it's Valentine's Day. He just asked me to become the senior pastor at Schweitzer. I just realized it's Valentine's Day. It's two o'clock in the afternoon. He says, I'm glad I don't have to bring this home to my wife tonight. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, I agree. I drive home from, it's about two hours back from Columbia to Kearney, and, and I, I drive home and I call, call Abby and I say, hey, we've been asked to take Schweitzer. You know, we need to think about this. And here's, here's the kicker of this whole thing, is he says, I need, okay, it's February 14th, uh, 2 p.m. I leave his office. You need to call me back by 8 a.m. 
well, it's a pressure cooker of a decision right there. And as we're thinking about this decision and praying about this decision and it's on our hearts that evening, you know, we're asking ourselves this question of what does the Lord want us to do? Because when I look at the circumstances, uh, there was some circumstantial confidence stuff we had to deal with. And it's not that when I looked at Schweitzer, the circumstances of Schweitzer were bad. I, they were unknown. I, I, I didn't know what was happening in Schweitzer. I know, I've known Bob, and I, I've known kind of about Schweitzer, but I haven't known the circumstances and the details of, of Schweitzer. I haven't really known what it's about. But I, but I did know the, the circumstances of Carney. I knew what it was like in our, in our church at the time, and things were really, really good in our church at the time. Um, I've been there for seven years, and in, it took us five years, but when I got there, it was a million and a half dollars of debt. We paid it off in five years, so we were debt-free. We were financially really well off in the church. It was like, ah, that's a great circumstance. Like, that's, that's awesome. That's, that's a fun place to be. And in Kearney, our, our tenants had grown by about 50% over those seven years, and so there's all these new people, and it was just fun to, to be in this environment where this growth was happening without building extra buildings, by the way. So, like, it was, it was this in, in fun thing to be in. And the greatest thing about what we were looking at in Kearney was we were growing mostly by professions of faith, which means new people, not transfers from other churches. And so for the first 20 weeks of this year, like from January to whenever 20 weeks would be, I don't know when that is, May-ish, uh, we baptized 22 adults, like dunked them, 22 adults. And that's over a, an adult per Sunday. It's like, man, I look at those circumstances. I don't know what's going on at Schweitzer. It's an unknown. I, it's, a, it's an unknown, but here is this really favorable circumstance. And I had to ask myself this question, how do I make the decision? Is it a circumstantial decision, or is it something deeper than that? And both Abby and I, we just felt like the Lord was saying, go, go, trust me. You don't know what it is? It's, it's, it's murky, it's fuzzy, there's a change here. It's gonna be hard, I mean, we knew it was gonna be hard, but go. Now I tell that story, and I, I hope you don't think that I usually make the faith-filled choice, because I usually don't. But in this instance, if circumstances had, had been the driving factor of my decision-making, if circumstances had been the driving factor of our decision-making, we'd miss out on something that God has for us. You see, as we approach uh, change, as we approach uh, this way of thinking about change, we can base our confidence on really two things, the circumstances of how it looks or simply the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God who's come through for us before and will come through for us again. We just need to have faith. We just need to trust him. One of my favorite authors is Eugene Peterson, and you're going to hear me quote Eugene Peterson a lot. But he has spoken to me in my life, and I want to share with you some words that he has about the faithfulness of God and why we can trust in God no matter what the circumstances might look like. This is what Eugene Peterson writes. It's kind of a lengthy quote, but it's just so good. He says that he, that is God, sticks with us is the reasons Christians can look back over a long life crisscrossed with cruelties, unannounced tragedies, unexpected setbacks, sufferings, disappointments, depressions. Look back across all that and see it as a road of blessing and make a song out of what we see. The central reality, I love this, the central reality for Christians is the personal, personal, unalterable, preserving commitment God makes to us. Perseverance is not the result of our determination. It is the result of God's faithfulness. We survive in the way of faith, not because we have extraordinary stamina, but because God is righteous, because God sticks with us. Christian discipleship is a process of paying more and more attention to God's righteousness and less and less attention to our own. Finding the meaning of our lives, not by probing our moods and motives and morals, but by believing in God's will and purposes. Making a map of the faithfulness of God, not charting the rise and fall of our enthusiasm. It is out of such a reality that we acquire perseverance. You see, friends, we are in a season of change. 
Some of you are in seasons of change in your own life. And as you approach the season of change, you can base your confidence on one of two options. On the circumstances and what the circumstances look like in your life, no matter what that change may look like, whether that change is here in the church or whether it's in your own life, in a relationship, in your job, with your finances, whatever that change might look like in your life. You can base your confidence on the future, on what you can see and what you can understand and what you can produce. Or you can base your confidence on the faithfulness of God, but you can't do both. It's really an either-or situation. And when we base our confidence on our future, on on what we see from the faithfulness of God, here's, here's what God gives us. He gives us joy. This is why I've been praying for you, that God would give you joy. Because it's a reminder that we can base everything, we can base our whole life on the faithfulness of God, that he has come through for us before and he'll come through for us again. And the reason we know he's trustworthy, the reason we know he's faithful, is because we have the cross. Because God so loved you, that he gave his one and only son, that if you believe, or rather the better Greek word here is trust him, that you'd have life everlasting. This is the faithfulness of God, that he's given his one and only son for you to have life. And if you can trust him with your eternal life, friends, you can definitely trust him with the details of your life. You can trust him with the changes in your life. You can trust him with those difficult changes in your life when the circumstances look unfavorable you can still trust him. And so as we're in the season of change, here's my one kind of pastoral word to the church I want to offer you this morning. Trust God. Trust God, trust God, trust God. No matter if it looks good or bad, trust God. In the midst of this pastoral transition, trust God. Whatever changes you might be going through in your own life, trust God. Put your faith, your trust, your hope in him because he is faithful and friends, he will not let you down. So this morning, I'm gonna gonna end my sermon this morning with a prayer, and I just wanna pray for anyone here this morning, and I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand or stand up or anything, but I just wanna pray for anyone here this morning who might need some joy, who who maybe you're going through uh, some sort of change or transition in your life. Maybe you're you're stressed out about this change in the church. Maybe maybe there's something else going on in your life, your marriage, your, your, your kids, your grandkids. There's changes happening in the air and you're nervous about it. You're stressed about it. I want to pray that God would give you a sense of, of joy this morning, his joy. And so if there's anyone here who's in that place, I just I want to pray for you this morning as we close and, 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 and ask God to give you his supernatural source of joy because he wants to bless you. He wants to provide for you. He wants to give you everything that you need. So let's pray together. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you are faithful, that you will not let us down, that you have come through for us before and you'll come through for us again, and the best evidence that we have of your great faithfulness is that your one and only son gave his life for us. And therefore, as we look at the cross, we know that you are faithful. For my friends here this morning, maybe there's some here who are going through some stressful situations and they're facing changes and it's, and it's hard on them. It's, it's worrying them. The circumstances look, look unfavorable. I pray, God, that you might give them a, a supernatural a source of joy this morning, that they would leave here filled with your spirit, knowing, knowing, knowing that they can trust you, that they can turn every circumstance over to you because you have their best interest in heart. Whether that circumstance is favorable or not, we can turn everything over to you, every detail of our life over to you, Because ultimately our confidence is not in what we can see, it's not what we can do, it's not what we can produce, it's not what we can make happen, but rather it's our trust in you because you are faithful. So Lord, today we are reminded and we remember your great faithfulness that's been given to us. 
And this is our confidence. In the name of Jesus, our Savior who rose from the dead, we pray together. Amen.